Good morning. Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We're continuing in our series through the Sermon on the Mount this morning. And as you can see, there's, there's a couple more points up there than, uh, than there usually is. So, but but uh, fret not, do not be anxious about how many points there are. We'll, we'll be done in a, t- a timely manner today. Uh, Matthew chapter 6 is where we'll be as we continue the Sermon on the Mount. Now, two weeks ago, we heard from Jesus about how we should not seek to store up earthly treasures, but rather heavenly ones, that ultimately we will serve either God or material things, money, right? We, we can really only make one the chief priority of our life. Now, this morning, Jesus is continuing that discussion. This isn't a change in topic. This is a continuation of his teaching in verses 19 through 24 about our relationship to material things. And really, Jesus is dealing with a common problem in this text. He's dealing with the effect of being overly concerned with matters of this life. Um, This effect that Jesus will name is something that many of us have experienced to some degree, some more, some less, and that is anxiety. Anxiety, anxiousness. Even hearing that word might make you start to feel anxious. Right? Anxiety affects different people in different ways. For some, it is a minor trouble. Uh, for others, it may be overwhelming at times. But fortunately, in our text this morning, Jesus doesn't just tell us, hey, don't be anxious. But he gives us seven good reasons why the believer has no need to be anxious. Seven reasons not to be anxious. Let's read our text starting in verse 25. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's ask for God's help as we come to his word. Our Lord, we thank you. Uh, Lord, that you are not uh, ignorant, nor oblivious, nor apathetic to our weaknesses, to our, our, our sins, Lord, uh, to our human condition. And that by your grace, Lord Jesus, you teach us and you address such a common problem of our hearts, anxiousness, worry, fear, and fret. Lord, thank you for your, your kind compassion in speaking to this matter of our heart. Lord, I pray for your help, that as we hear the words of Christ, uh, Lord, that you would do work in our own hearts, that you would expose those areas where we are anxious, those areas where we perhaps trust our own abilities rather than in your provision, those areas where we may love the things of this world so much that we fear losing them. And then instead, Lord, you would direct our attention to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Lord, I pray for your help, that you would help me to Uh, represent your teaching clearly and and to only speak words that are in agreement with your word. Uh, Lord, we pray your will be done, um, that we would be made more like Christ this day. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Seven reasons not to be anxious. And we'll see them as we go down the text. Seven reasons not to be anxious. And verse 25 begins with the word, therefore which tells us that Jesus, again, is not changing the topic from the previous verses, but he's continuing the discussion. It's continuing to flow on. 
Our text for this morning really is the finale to Jesus' teaching in the previous verses on heavenly versus earthly treasures. And the conclusion that Jesus comes to is simple to understand, but difficult to live out. And Jesus' conclusion is this, Therefore, do not be anxious. Easier said than done sometimes, right? But he says, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat or drink, your body, your clothing. If you recall from a few weeks ago, Jesus taught us that this life and the things in it are temporary, but heaven is eternal. Therefore, Jesus says, do not be anxious about this life. But before we go any further, we need to understand what Jesus means when he says, do not be anxious. Right? We live in a, a uh, psychologized culture, right? and anxiety has become really a blanket term for all kinds of things. On one hand, we use anxiety to describe feelings of unease, worry, stress, concern, fear, feelings that sometimes are a normal part of human life. On the other hand, anxiety is used to refer to what some see as a disorder, right? Anxiety that is overwhelming and can be so powerful that it leads to debilitating panic attacks. So there's a wide range of of uses for anxiety in our day-to-day. But the word that Jesus uses in the Greek for anxiety uh, is a lot more specific. It's describing a focused care about the future. A focused care about the future. You've probably felt this kind of anxiety before. Um, You're worried, you're wondering what's going to happen in a particular situation in the future. Will we have enough money to pay bills next month? Will I be able to reconcile this broken relationship eventually? What are those people going to think of me? When will my brother or sister in Christ finally turn away from the sin they've been living in? There are infinite examples of things that that we think about, that we care about regarding the future. And really, that's the root of anxiety. It is a focused care about the future. Now, we need to be careful, right? Because not all anxiety is bad, biblically speaking. (laughs) Not all anxiety is bad. On the other hand, not all anxiety is good either. In other words, a worry and anxiety are not morally neutral. It's not just our brains acting like chemical machines. Really, the heart is the source. The heart is the source. And as we'll see, our worries and our anxieties reveal our loves, our fears, and the object of our faith. D.A. Carson says this, There is a sense in which worry is not only good, but its absence is, biblically speaking, irresponsible. On the other hand, there is a sense in which worry is not only evil, but its presence signifies unbelief and disobedience. So think about this for a second, right? There is a sense in which a complete lack of concern for the future is irresponsible. For example, if I neglect to save for my retirement, or if I neglect to care about my job, and do a good work there, well, my wife and kids may suffer from my irresponsibility, right? If I'm just easygoing, everything will be fine. I don't need to put in any work or prepare now or be wise. Well, that's irresponsible. That is not pleasing to God, right? If I don't prepare well for a trip, I may suffer the consequences. If I don't study or work hard, that may result in uh, less opportunity in the future. Well, we should care about the future in that regard, right? That kind of care is good. It is, uh, in, in many cases, godly. But is this the kind of care Jesus is talking about here? It's not. It's not. Jesus is describing the kind of consuming worry and anxiety that results from making this life and the things in it the most important. Jesus is describing the kind of consuming worry and anxiety that results from making this life and the things in it the most important. Really, as we'll see, Jesus is describing the kind of concern about the future that removes God from the picture. Jesus is not telling us to stop caring about the necessities of this life, but he is telling us that we we must not become concerned about them to the point of overwhelming care that draws our attention away from God. And look what Jesus does at the end of verse 25. He gives us our first reason why we should not be anxious. He says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He reminds us that life is more than the things we get anxious about. Life is more than food. The body is more than something to put clothes on. Our bodies and our lives, they don't simply exist to eat and drink and sleep and wear clothes, right? If survival was the goal of life, then yeah, sure, 
it's worth being anxious about those things. But as Christians, we believe that what Jesus says is true. There is more to life, more to the body, than just eating, drinking, and wearing clothes. The true purpose of life has God at the center of it. And anxiety results from making these things, right, these material things, the focus, the primary center, and putting God on the sidelines. Life is more than the body, more than food, drink, and clothing. Now, Jesus lists some reasonable things here. He doesn't say life is more than a Corvette and a mansion, right? These are pretty necessities, or pretty necessary things for life. Food, drink, clothing. We do need those things to live. And, and again, Jesus is not saying don't care about those things. He's not saying don't give attention to those things. But if you reduce life down to those things, then what happens? Those things become your focus. And then, right, when those things become the primary concern of your heart, that leads to anxiety, to worry. Because now, what is your objective in life? It is either keeping what you have materially, right? That's my goal. Life is about these things and I must keep them. Or obtaining what you don't have. That becomes the driving goal of life. And that is a cycle that is never satisfied. Because there's always something that could take what you have and you may just never have enough. Well, that's anxiety. Ecclesiastes captures this so vividly. Turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 just briefly for a moment with me. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, chapter 5. Solomon, a man who knew well what it was to have all the money, all the wealth, all the possessions in the world, at the end of his life, writes something quite insightful. Here's what he writes. Ecclesiastes 5, starting in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity, it's emptiness. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. In other words, those who are consumed with obtaining or keeping the things of this life can never truly be satisfied and really can only be given over to worry and anxious about the estate of their belongings. <coughs> now, in first century Palestine, there was not a Walmart, uh, you know, on every corner that you could get a $2 t-shirt. Clothing cost money. Food wasn't always guaranteed. A lack of rain could cause a major famine in the land. And without food, you have nothing to eat. And without food, you may have nothing to sell. So Jesus' words here... Um, I think take on a lot more of a weight probably to his audience than to we today who live in a consumeristic culture, right? We, we are beyond wealthy compared to many countries in the world. Now, that's not to say even in America, food insecurity and poverty are not real issues. They are. We don't want to minimize that, and neither does Jesus here. But Jesus' point is that life is more than these things. Life is more than finances. Life is more than approval from other people. Life is more than feeling comfortable. Life is more than whatever the cause of our anxiety may be. And this is a really important reason to consider when we're talking about anxiety because um, I don't know about you. I, I think this is probably universal for anxiety. When you are anxious about something, you cannot stop thinking about it, right? You try to go do something else, but you are locked into that. You try to talk to somebody and while you're having this conversation, your mind is just going a mile a minute about whatever that situation or bill or whatever it may be. Really, it's tunnel vision, right? Anxiety results in tunnel vision. We are, we are locked in, chained in a way to whatever it is that we're anxious about. But Jesus' words here actually give us back our peripheral vision. These words remind us that there is more to this life, there are more significant things than what we are consumed by in our anxiety. And Jesus also reminds us here that we have needs beyond the material, right? There are things that we need beyond just food, clothing, and drink, right? This brings our attention to our spiritual needs, to the needs of our soul. 
Are these to be neglected for the needs of our body? Right? Are not the needs of our souls more important than our, our bank accounts or our closets? And one thing I love about this passage is, is Jesus doesn't just say, don't be anxious, and he moves on. Right? Because that doesn't work for anxiety, does it? Somebody tells you, hey, don't be anxious, and what do you, you feel more anxious? You know, you start to panic more. Jesus is so wise, and so he gives us these reasons why we shouldn't be anxious about God's provision for the future. Seven, in fact. And the first being, life is more than material things. This restores our peripheral vision, right? We can see things in, in a godly balance, if you will. Well, this brings us to our, our second point. Jesus is going to, kind of in this middle section of the text, give us some illustrations and some more reasons why, as believers, we should not be anxious. Why we should not be anxious. In verse 26, he draws our attention to the birds of the air. Look what Jesus says. He says, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. There are no bird farmers out there, right? They just um, go around and, and food is provided for them. Now they put in work, right? They're searching diligently. If you've ever watched birds, uh, they're very industrious. But they don't cultivate anything. They simply are searching for the food that is there. And who feeds them? Jesus says, our heavenly Father. God does. God feeds the birds. Now, there are 8 billion human beings on the earth today. Do you know how many birds there are? There's between 50 and 400 billion. Right? It's a lot more birds than people. And God cares for the sparrows, the finches, the hummingbirds, the tiniest things. Um, he, is he not able to provide for you? But really, the best part of this reason here, number two, is what we see at the end of verse 26. Are you not of more value than they? This is our second reason. You are God's most precious creation. As a human being, you are most beloved to God, more than the birds. And he cares well for them. Will he not care better for you? That's Jesus' point. Right? Do you think God loves the birds or people more? Well, the answer is people. God made you and I uniquely, made in his image. There is a value in that that no other creature can even attempt to rise to. Being made in the image of God places an inherent value in you as a human being. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, you are made in that image and you have immense value to God. On top of that, who was it that Jesus died for? It wasn't birds, right? He didn't give his life for the birds, but for us, for people, right? Jesus' point that is, is that if God takes care of insignificant birds, of which there are many, 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 and you are much more precious to him, his most precious creation, in fact, will he not take better care of you? He surely will. He surely will. The question is, do we really believe that we are more precious to God than the birds? Right? That's what we have to ask ourselves. Because the reality is, the birds are not anxious about God's care for them. They don't have a thought in their, their bird brains about that. right? Well, we shouldn't be anxious about God's care for us either. We are his most precious creation. The second reason Jesus gives us not to be anxious is in verse 27. Jesus says, are you, uh, excuse me, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? The third reason that we as believers should not be anxious is because anxiety accomplishes nothing. It accomplishes nothing, right? This is one of the, you know, there's just things you read and you're, you're just, wow, Jesus, that is so obviously true and so wise. Why didn't I ever put those pieces together, right? This is one of those verses. Anxiety produces nothing good. Nothing good. Let's say you go into work tomorrow and you lose your job, right? You get called into the boss's office. You get, uh, you know, handed your, your, uh, your letter, right, of termination. Well, an anxious response is to start panicking, to break down, to just start focusing on those questions of what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? How am I going to make ends meet? You know, what, what about my kids, right? To become instantly focused with tunnel vision upon the problem. Right? We've all been there before. And Jesus uses the example of life itself. Many people, in fact, are anxious about the number of days 
in their life, the length of their life. We've seen that through the, the COVID epidemic, right? People panic. And Jesus says this in effect. You cannot lengthen your life by being anxious. You cannot live longer by worrying about how long you're going to live. It will do nothing. You cannot pay your bills by worrying about them. You cannot find a new job by being anxious about it. Anxiety produces nothing good. And in fact, anxiety decreases your lifespan. It takes hours away from your life. People who are constantly anxious live years less than the average lifespan because your body is churning out adrenaline, you get ulcers, there are all kinds of health problems that come. So ironically, anxiety does the opposite. It causes more problems and accomplishes nothing good. As Charles Spurgeon said, anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but it only empties today of its strength. So as believers, anxiety does nothing good. It accomplishes nothing. Why be anxious? The reason number four Jesus gives us is in verses 28 through 30. And this reason is you have an eternal soul. An immortal soul, I should say. You have an immortal soul. And Jesus again turns our attention to God's creation in order to give us our, our, uh, third, our fourth reason here. He tells us to consider the lilies of the field. He says, why are you anxious about clothing? Verse 28, consider the lilies of the field. How they grow. Now the lilies of the field refers just kind of in a blanket way to the wildflowers of the hills of Galilee. And this is the place Jesus is giving this sermon. Um, Israel is actually home to an enormous number of wildflower species, 2,500 in fact. Um, and uh, they carpet the hills of Galilee in the north in the springtime. Uh, there's some amazing pictures online, just bright colors, red, yellow, purple. It's really incredible. We think about Israel as a desert. Right? But these pictures are, are completely different than what you might expect. And remember, this is the Sermon on the Mount. I, I can't help but wonder if Jesus maybe was giving this sermon in the springtime. Up there on the mount, surrounded by these carpets of wildflowers, using them as an illustration. And he points out to us and to his hearers that these flowers, they don't toil. right? They don't collect flax. They don't shave sheep to get wool. They don't you know, uh, process cotton. They don't do any of that. They don't spin to turn it into weavable or, or sewable material, fabric. Yet, Jesus says, Solomon himself, the richest king in the history of Israel, who had more money, more wealth, the finest clothes, even he couldn't hold a candle to a wild flower in the hills of Galilee. Just think about that for a second. Some of you are gardeners. Some of you are not. But have you ever just stopped to look at a flower? They are incredibly beautiful. The colors are rich, vibrant. Their shapes are so unique. I mean, they are really beautiful creations. The next time you find yourself out and about, just, just stop and look at a flower for a long time, for a couple minutes. Put the phone away, right? And just give your attention to what God has made there. And you will see amazing handiwork of our Creator. And, and, and Jesus' point is this, the flowers aren't anxious about how they look, are they? They're not wondering, you know, when that, uh, that new fashion item is going to come out and they'll, they'll be able to get it so they can look better than the lupus next door, you know. They, they aren't concerned about those things, right? They aren't worried about that. They are clothed in beauty by their maker. A beauty that is unsurpassed by anything you and I could make. And look what Jesus says in verse 30. God so clothes the grass of the field this way, the beautiful flowers. And he, he tells us that these plants are today alive, tomorrow thrown into the oven. Right? The beautiful flowers are there in the hills of Galilee, yet the bloom's only there for a few weeks. The flowers fade, the grass withers. They don't last very long at all. And when they do wither up and fade, what is their, their fate? Cooking fuel. Right? Nothing more than that. Cooking fuel. That's it. That's hardly a glamorous ending for something so beautiful, isn't it? And yet, God does not spare the beauty he clothes them in. Even though they just last for such a short amount of time and are turned into ash, God still clothes them in beauty. And they're just these temporal things. 
But as a human being, you have an immortal soul. And not just that, the scriptures tell us as we sang this morning, our bodies will be raised to immortality at the return of Christ. You are an immortal creature. You don't just last for a couple weeks and then you're gone. This portion of our existence on this earth is described as a vapor, but in light of eternity, which we are destined for as believers. Your body may die, but if God is your heavenly Father, your soul goes immediately to be with Him. And if God clothes the flowers so well, and they are temporary, how much more will He clothe you and care for you, who has an immortal soul and a body that is destined for immortality too? He will put more care into you than the grass and the flowers. Therefore, we should not be anxious. And notice those last few words of verse 30. Oh, you of little faith. Something Jesus says to his disciples on a number of different occasions. Oh, you of little faith. But, but notice in context how Jesus is describing the person who is anxious. Oh, you of little faith. We cannot avoid what Jesus identifies as an underlying cause of anxiety. Because it is at some level, I would say at the deepest level, it is a matter of faith. It is a problem of faith, and I don't mean that in any kind of flippant, cliche sort of way. Because anxiety is really hard. It can be very, very challenging for many people. So what I'm not saying is that, that, that anxious people have, have not endured very difficult things that makes it difficult for them to trust God sometimes. I'm not saying that there is not a physiological component to anxiety. Um, but we can't ignore the fundamental underlying cause that Jesus lays out here. It is a matter of faith, of trusting God. And, and I understand that that is not a popular statement in our society today, right? Because anxiety is viewed as a disorder, as a result of a broken brain. But Jesus says that that is not that simple. We are more than our bodies, aren't we? And we're told that what happens in us, our thoughts, our desires, our fears, these flow out not of our bodies, but of our hearts. Now, just because anxiety is a faith issue, again, does not mean it's not a genuine struggle for some people. Um, some people may not struggle with anger, right? But anxiety, that might be their, their besetting sin, right? So to speak, anxiety can be hard. But let's pull this apart for a second, okay? So anxiety is a focused care about what? The future, right? But it is also usually focused on trying to control the future. And that's where the faith component comes in. Um, a couple weeks ago, Shelby and I flew to Texas. And uh, I have a tendency to get stressed out and impatient when we're running behind the timeline that I've laid out in my mind, right? <laughs> it's, it's in stone. It's immovable. Um, and uh, I don't really think of myself as an anxious person, but upon further reflection, Getting impatient, getting stressed out about being late is anxiety. Why? Right? Because I think we're going to be late, right, in my mind. But as long as we stick to my almighty timeline, which stands into the future, things will be fine. Right? Uh, I'm trying to control the future of us getting to the airport and our destination on time. That's what I'm trying to do. But, you know, I can't account for anything that will happen in the future, right? We could get a flat tire on the freeway. We could have plane maintenance issues. There is all kinds of things that could happen because I can't control the future. And when I try, what is the result? Anx right? Anxiety, anxiousness. Getting anxious about the future only reveals I am not trusting the future to the God who can control it. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes the point that you know, as Christians, we sometimes fall into the trap of thinking our faith only extends to our salvation, right? Um, and, and it kind of becomes confined there. And, and sure, with our lips, we would say, yeah, I, I trust God, just blanket term. But the way we live and the things we get anxious about reveal that that's, that may not always be the case. Sometimes we trust God to save us, but we don't trust him to provide for us. But in, in Martin Lloyd-Jones' words, true faith is a faith that extends to all of life. That includes God providing for our needs and the future. And if you notice, Jesus' answer to the question and problem of anxiety is not just have more faith. He tells us what the underlying issue is, right? Which, which at its core is trusting the future to the Lord. But the answer he gives us is not 
hey, buddy, just have more faith. It's going to be fine. He gives us seven reasons why we should not be anxious, right? Jesus' answer to the, the problem of anxiety is, let me tell you about God's love and care for you so your faith may be strengthened in him. Let me tell you why it is better for you to trust him than to try to take his job. Right, let me tell you about how you can trust him not only to save your soul, but to care for your life. When dealing with anxiety, considering good reasons not to be anxious can actually be helpful. Saying, hey, just have some more faith, that's, that's not helpful. But saying, here are the reasons why your faith can be strengthened. That is helpful for a brother or a sister in need as we listen to them patiently. But at its core, right, anxiety reveals who we trust most, ourself or God. Who's going to take better care of tomorrow? Well, when we're anxious, we think we can. Our sixth, uh, fifth reason here, excuse me, fifth reason here that Jesus says we should not be anxious is found in verses 31 and 32. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. Jesus says for a second time, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. Hmm. The reason Jesus gives us here not to be anxious is that our heavenly Father knows our needs. Right? The things that he lists here, clothing, food, drink, he says, these are the things that the Gentiles seek after, the things that the Gentiles desire and make their priority. And the Gentiles, of course, right, are those who are not Jewish people. And Jesus is speaking probably to an exclusively Jewish audience here in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, today, right, guess what? Uh, just about all of you in this room are, are Gentiles, of course. So how should we understand Jesus' words here today? It's, it's really anybody who is not in covenant with God through Christ by faith. Right? Anybody who is not a Christian, somebody who does not know the true and living God. And for those people who don't know the true and living God, there is nothing better in this life than these things. Right? Than food, drink, clothing, material things. That's as good as it's going to get if you do not know the Lord. Um, and and we, we actually see another reality about anxiety here. It reveals what we love. Because what we love is what we seek, isn't it? And that's what Jesus taught us in the preceding verses. In verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What we love is what we pursue. The things we're anxious about losing or having are the things that we love deepest, the things that we prize the most. And for those who do not know God through Christ, right, there, there is nothing else of value but the things in this world. But for the Christian, for the disciple of Jesus, we, we don't ignore these things again, but we must view them a different way. And look what Jesus says at the end of verse 32. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. God knows what you need. If, if you are a Christian, if you've trusted Christ alone to save you, you've been adopted, and you can call God your Father. Not everybody has that right. It's only given through faith in Christ. But if you are a Christian, you can call him your father. And you can know him in his goodness and his character. He knows what you need. He knows whether or not you need food or drink or clothing. He is aware that you and I are frail creatures, right? Psalm 90, he knows our frame. Uh, excuse me, Psalm 103, right? He knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. He's aware that we are just these feeble little guys down here, you know? But he's not oblivious to our lack. He's not apathetic to our circumstances. He will care for us. God knowing our needs is not just information to him. Okay? It's, it's tied to his love for us. He is kind and generous towards his children. Now, think about this for a moment, right? When you get that tunnel vision of anxiety, you're worried about how are we going to take care of this or where is this going to come from or what am I going to do about that? When you start to think about, wow, you know, the Lord knows me. He's my father. He is good. He will take care of me. That doesn't necessarily make the struggle just instantly disappear, but it does help put some ground under your feet, doesn't it? You start to go, wait, okay, I'm not alone in this challenging situation. The Lord knows what I need. He knows about what I'm going through. He is my father. 
But at the same time, right, our greatest loves and our concerns should not be the things of this life, but something different, something greater. And Jesus calls our attention to what a Christian's greatest treasure should be in the next few verses. This brings us to our sixth reason not to be anxious. And we read in verse 33, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That word there, but, is a contrast. Jesus is saying, don't be like the Gentiles seeking those things, but instead seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. This is what our aim is to be as disciples of Jesus. This is what we are to value and desire and love. And Jesus says that when we do this, all these things, referring to food, drink, clothing, right, the essentials, will be added to us. So the question, right, we would naturally ask is, okay, well, if that's how I ensure my needs are met, how do I seek that kingdom of God? How do I seek his righteousness? Well, uh, in some sense, the answer is found in one simple word. It's that word, first. First. To seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, really at its core, means to put God and his things as the first and ultimate priority in your This is describing first importance. As one commentator says, Jesus is clearly saying that the disciples' first and best effort is to be directed towards God's kingdom, not any personal need. Challenging, isn't it? In other words, Jesus is saying that um, what we are really seeking is the most important thing. But what should that be? Should not be our financial well-being? should not be a solid family structure. It's not career advancement. Are those good things? Absolutely. Should they be our chief aim and goal in life? Not for their own sake, no. Not for their own sake. It should be the kingdom of God. At its core, to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness means to understand and to see God as the king of our lives. He is the king of the kingdom. And that we seek to serve Him and obey Him in all things. And that also means, however, that these promises are not for unbelievers. Right? God does not promise to care for the needs of those who are not his children. Now, he does by common grace, as we heard in Psalm 104. But these promises, these guarantees are for God's people. And this is emphasized by Jesus' command to seek the righteousness of God first as well. Now, we've been going through Romans, right? And Paul uses this phrase to describe justification in Romans. But in Matthew's Gospel... Matthew most often uses this word as he's quoting Jesus to refer to a way of living, to live righteously. So keeping in mind that Jesus is speaking to his disciples, right? Jesus is uh, speaking to those who have been justified already, so to speak. Jesus is talking to those who have been made righteous by faith. We can't seek further justification, right? It's, It's black and white. There's not levels to our justification. You can't seek more righteousness in that sense. No, Jesus is referring to living in a way that reflects God's righteous standard. To live in obedience to Him. Right? That's our call as Christians. To live lives that are pleasing to God according to His righteous law. If we do this, Jesus says, then all these other material essentials, food, drink, clothing, shall be added to us. Um, And we've got to be careful here. Right? Because if we interpret this the wrong way, we end up in prosperity gospel land. Which says, hey, as long as you have enough faith and you know, do enough stuff at church and blah, 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 uh, you'll, you'll have a great, comfortable, wealthy life. That is not what Jesus is saying here. Okay, that is not what Jesus is saying here. There is not a one-to-one correlation going on. It doesn't work like that. God is not a vending machine. You put in good works, you get out good stuff. That's not how it works. Jesus is not saying that if we do what God wants, we'll be well off and won't lack anything. No. Think about what Jesus is saying for a second. If we seek to live lives of obedience to God's law, right, obeying Him, honoring Him, seeking His glory, because we are saved by grace and His disciples, God will bless that because He's pleased. In the ways He blesses that, right, who can say? But He will bless that. So we have that peace that we know for sure. But there's another component that I think we often overlook. 
If we are living in conformity to God's laws best as we are able by the power of the Spirit, right? And none of us are perfect. We all have our struggles. But if we are seeking His kingdom first, then we will be following His design. And there is true blessing and flourishing in God's design. Let's just take for a moment what the Bible teaches about how we should work. Colossians chapter 3. Turn over there briefly. Colossians chapter 3. And we'll look at verses 22 and 24. Colossians chapter 3. Here's what Paul writes. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Today we could say employees and, and bosses. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So let's think about this for a second. If you are a lazy employee, if you are inconsistent, if you are rebellious against your employer, if you don't care about your work, first, are you seeking God's kingdom in your workplace? Nope. Second, should you expect the Lord to bless you in your work? You're going to get fired, right? You're going to get fired. But if you are diligent, working hard for the Lord's sake, trying to do a good job for His glory and for Him as your ultimate master, then will He bless you in your work? Well, yeah, your employee will appreciate your labor, um, right? And this is an ideal situation. We don't always have good bosses, right? But even a bad boss will pay for good work. And it is often through ordinary means that God provides for us. So if you are a hard worker laboring for the Lord, will he provide for you food, clothing, drink through that job? Yes, he will. You're working and living in a way that is honoring to the Lord. And through that means... He will provide for you. Another often overlooked way that God provides for his people is through his people, right? I can't count the number of times that I have witnessed God provide for the needs of Christians through the generosity of other Christians. This is what's supposed to happen in a church, isn't it? It's what we see in the early church, Acts 2, right? And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, we're in a different context, a different situation than these early believers who had, who had left everything behind them, right? But what is the heart there? They saw their brother or sisters who didn't have a way to get food or clothing or drink, and they used their resources to meet their needs of their brothers or sisters. That is the Lord providing through his people, right? If you found out that your brother or sister had no food or no clothing, what would you do? Right? I'm confident, because I've seen it many times, that we as a church would be eager to help meet the needs of one of our members. But what does this require? Again, it requires living in conformity to God's design, His law. It requires obedience to the biblical teaching of being part of a local church, right? In fellowship and membership with other believers. If you do the Lone Ranger Christian thing, you have cut yourself off from the support network that God has designed for you. You cannot be blessed by the generosity of other believers in the same way as if you are regularly gathering and worshiping in a local church as God commands in His Word. Right? Likewise, we should be thoughtful. How, how can I use what God has given me to help a brother or sister who is, who is in true need? Right, That is a way we can seek his kingdom with our resources. Now, Jesus is not saying we will never have times of lack again. Right? Jesus is not saying that there won't be times when we are hard up. Jesus is not saying that Christians will never face shortage. There are Christians across the world who face starvation and poverty right now. So how do we understand Jesus' words here? It's a pretty serious issue to consider, right? And it may be tempting to think that, well, okay, that sounds great, Jesus. We live in a first world country, but, but what about starving Christians, right? These words, they hold any water for those people? Well, there's a couple small points, right? First, well, not first, but as a, as a preface, you know, we cannot presume to know God's plans or his will. Right? So I say these things cautiously and, and uh, humbly. Um, 
First, Jesus says in Matthew 26, 11, that we will always have the poor with us. So clearly, Jesus is not teaching here that poverty disappears by being his disciple, right? Becoming a Christian doesn't mean you're not going to experience poverty or lack or hardship. Second, there are times when God in his providence afflicts his saints for the sake of his kingdom. Um, God does allow Christians in some countries to experience persecution that leads to starvation. And that's not because he doesn't care for them. But rather, um, he loves them so much he desires to give them the honor of martyrdom. These brothers and sisters are no longer seeking God's kingdom. They've been received into it. Uh, And they're actually in a far better place than we. Thirdly, Jesus' main point here is um, not that discipleship to him results in no lack, but rather by seeking God's kingdom is the thing of greatest value, then it removes the hold we have on things of this life and the anxiety that accompanies it. So We have to consider the context as well. So it's in light of this command to seek God's kingdom and righteousness first, above our own concerns and ambitions and anxieties. It's in light of the promise that God will provide for his children that we find Jesus' final Reason not to be anxious in verse 34. God will guide tomorrow. God will guide tomorrow. Jesus says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I think it's interesting to point out that uh, Jesus has said for the third time in 10 verses, do not be anxious. That's a lot of times in 10 verses, right? Three times, do not be anxious. I wonder what his main point here is. Right? I wonder what he's trying to get across to us. But think about this for a second, right? For any one of us to continue to fret about the matters of this life in a way that cuts God out of the picture is really to disobey our master's instruction, isn't it? And to disobey Jesus is sin, especially after he's told us three times not to be anxious, right? You know, my kids get disciplined after one time, you know. Jesus has told us three times here. Um, And so there's the question of, is is anxiety sin? Well, sometimes, right? Sometimes. If it is an anxiety that refuses to trust God with tomorrow, then yeah, we're disobeying Christ here. And that is something to repent of, right? Have you ever thought about repenting of anxiety? Now, Jesus has laid out good reasons for us For the believer, right? Not to be anxious about tomorrow. And again, notice the future orientation here. Be anxious about tomorrow. About the future. And he gives us one more good reason here. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Anxieties are concerned with tomorrow, but again, there is nothing anxiety can do about tomorrow. So put those anxious cares where they belong. Not in today, but in tomorrow. In tomorrow. There's enough things to be concerned about today, right? That's what Jesus says. There are enough ways to see God's kindness, provision, and faithfulness today. And that is what we are to do, right? Tomorrow will be what it is, and anxiety can do nothing to change that. doesn't mean we don't plan for tomorrow, but it does mean that we have to recognize we cannot control tomorrow. We don't have that power, Right? We can live today as God would have us. That is to be our concern. That is to be our focus. We must leave tomorrow's troubles where they belong, and that is tomorrow in his hands. Right? Because we can't control tomorrow, but there is one who already knows and has already planned what will happen. And that is our unchanging, ever-faithful God. He is sovereign and he is good. If God was not good, his sovereignty would be scary. But we know he is good. So whatever he ordains, whatever comes to pass, we can know he is good in his purposes for that. As David says in Psalm 139, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. God has this day and tomorrow and the next day and the next, all of our lives written out according to his sovereign goodness. So our God is not only faithful today, he's not only faithful in the past, but he will be faithful tomorrow. And so we can entrust tomorrow to him and rest secure that he will guide us as our good shepherd through what we don't know is ahead of us. The Apostle Peter, Jesus' close disciple, summarized our Lord's teaching 
in this passage well in his first epistle. And here's what Peter said. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I'm going to read that again. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So as we consider these seven reasons Jesus gives us not to be anxious, there are times when we do need to call upon the Lord and say, Lord, I'm anxious about being anxious. Please help my anxious heart. That's a good prayer to pray, right? Instead of just being consumed by anxiety, bringing, those, bringing the fact of your anxiety to the Lord and asking for him to help you. That's a good thing to do, brothers and sisters. And for those matters that consume us, whether it's a bill, a relationship, whatever it may be, simply whatever tomorrow holds, let us bring those anxieties to him, to throw them upon our Lord, to cast them on him, knowing he cares for us. So may we be humble enough to realize we are not in control of the future. May we realize that the mighty hand of our God is working in our lives for his glory and our good. And may we cast all our anxieties about our needs and our future upon him, the one who provides for us and guides us because as our Heavenly Father, He knows our needs and He cares for us. So do not be anxious about your life, brothers and sisters. It is secure in your Father's hands. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, Lord, we confess to you that uh, at times we are given to anxiety, some of us more than others. But Lord, each one of us knows what it is to struggle to trust you. Father, we thank you that you're so patient with us. And Lord, that you continue to, through our lives, show again and again and again that you are trustworthy, that you are faithful. And that as we enter challenging situations today, that as we think upon your faithfulness yesterday, that we can entrust you with tomorrow. Father, I pray for those who, who uh, particularly struggle with anxiety, Lord, whom it is a challenge for. Lord, I pray that these truths that you've laid out for us today would be helpful for them, encouraging for them. That, that in the times where they are, they are spinning their wheels, Lord, when they are consumed with, with fretting and worry, that you would graciously remind them that you are their Father, that you care for them. Lord, that they are of great value to you. And that you are with them, Lord, even in their difficulties. Father, help us to entrust ourselves to your care. You are our good Father. In your name we pray these things. Amen.